Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure that you are uh, not walking according to your nasty little sin nature, but walking according to the Holy Spirit. So you'll have a few moments of silent prayer to confess any sin you need to to the Lord before we get started, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great opportunity we have tonight to come together to focus upon you, that in the midst of a world where there is so much chaos and so many uh, bad decisions and poor leadership and uh, actually destructive decisions that are being made at the highest levels throughout the world, we know that there is security, there is confidence in one place. There's one place of stability and hope, and that is your throne of grace and that you have put us here on the earth that we might be a witness, a light shining in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and certainly that describes our generation. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, enlighten us to your word of truth, that we might understand these things, see how they apply to our lives, challenge our thinking, and that we might be willing to change and uh, conform our thoughts to your thoughts rather than to the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. And one of the things that happens when you are a teacher, if you're paying attention, is that you realize that sometimes you're, you're covering passages or something that you're talking about that's, that's really turned people's brains inside out. And I did that last week when we got into this. And we're going to start off pretty similar to where I started last week just to bring our thoughts back into this passage. And although a, a, a certain amount of this is similar to last week, actually what we're focusing on tonight is just going to be a clearer understanding of verses 4 and 5, whereas what I did last time was to try to present an overview as to why I was basically interpreting verses uh, 4 and 5 the way I did that focusing on understanding context. I saw a great little cartoon that came out uh, somewhere this last week, and I, I uh, posted it on, the, uh, on my Facebook page for people to enjoy. A couple, of, uh, uh, a couple coming out from church, having visited church, a new church on a Sunday morning, coming out, shaking hands with the pastor. And the man says to the pastor, says, well, this was our first time here, and I was just wondering... Do you always take Scripture out of context like this, or is this a special series? (laughs) 
that's probably true for about 95% of the churches in this in this country. So what I talked about last time is this idea of context. Now, last time I focused on the power of God. We're come, emphasizing the same thing today, but the fact in verse uh, 5 that God's already provided the solution to our problems. So that's the focus in, in tonight's lesson. So meaning is determined by context. I use this illustration of a jigsaw puzzle. Now, I think most of us have probably put together a jigsaw puzzle. If you're from some states in the in the Union, you call them picture puzzles, but down here we call them jigsaw puzzles. And the way you orient to what that is supposed to be when you have a billion pieces to try to put together that don't seem to make a lot of sense is you look on the box top. You have to understand the overview. And that's what I was trying to do last time was to talk about the overview because the overview, and as you look at the big picture, that informs what the details mean, even though the detail, like a, like a piece in a jigsaw puzzle, could be taken in and of itself to be a representative of just about anything. It could be a blue sky. It could be a, a overall blue-hued picture. It could be mountains in the distance. It could be sea. It could be a fish. It could be a plant. Any number of things. But, but the only thing that's going to tell you what that blue piece is is the context. And so I took these pictures of different jigsaw puzzles and it could be a piece anywhere in this particular picture or in this mountain scene. It could be a pattern on a balloon or the sky in the background. It could be part of this undersea picture. It could be the water. It could be a plant. It could be a fish. And so the only way we know uh, what that piece actually it, it is is if we put it into context. And even though it could be you could look at it and say, in and of itself, it could be blue sky. It only has that meaning if that's the context that it's in. You can't, and, and too often what people do is say, this verse sounds like it could mean this. And in and of itself, it might mean that. But it, but it only means that if that's what the original context says because God revealed these verses as parts of sentences, as parts of paragraphs, as parts of a structure of, of an epistle. And so we have to understand this, and I talked about this last week. So when you come to this particular, my point last week was when you come to this particular section and you take a look at it, uh, there are certain key words that, that stand out, one of which is the word salvation, and another is the word faith. Faith is mentioned several times. It's mentioned in verse 5. It's mentioned in verse 7. Uh, believing is mentioned in verse 8, and faith again in verse 9. Uh, salvation is mentioned in verse 5. Uh, salvation is mentioned in verse 9. Salvation is mentioned in verse 10. And in all of these particular uh, verses, we have to ask that question, does this refer to being what we normally refer to with an evangelical lingo or jargon, getting say, that is getting eternal life, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life or being justified, or does this refer to something else? And so we've looked at this many times, and I just want to put this up here as a diagram for background is the word saved in Scripture is used, and some people have said three tenses. 
Others have said, I think I've used the phrase three stages, sometimes three phases. And the first is salvation. In terms of justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's how that the word saved is used in salvation, and that sense refers to a person who's been regenerate, a person who is justified. Phase 2, the word is used in work, terms of working out your salvation. In Philippians chapter 2, we work out our salvation day to day. We work out the consequences of our salvation. So that really refers to phase 2. And in the whole epistle of Romans, this word group, salvation and saved, never refers to justification. Paul always makes that distinction. We saw that when we went through Romans. And so we have to be careful. And sometimes the writers of Scripture will use it in both senses within the framework of their epistle. And uh, I think Peter does. But here it's talking about really phase, phase two. And it can also refer to phase three. And when we look at this sort of a first blush, especially when we look at verse 5, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, that's an end goal, it really looks like that would be our ultimate end of phase 3, which is glorification. However, when we look at the context, which is like the picture on the top of that jigsaw puzzle, the context throughout um, throughout Peter is really focusing on living today in light of eternity, handling and facing the trials and difficulties and challenges of life today with a view to uh, to the end game. And I use the illustration about dessert that we, every time you go to a restaurant, I did this this week, I said, i got to know what the dessert is so I can begin with the end in mind. And then I used the illustration of the guy who had died, and he's in the casket, and everybody walks by, and he's got a fork in his hand, and everybody goes by, and, and uh, why has he got a fork in his hand? Well, his wife told him that, that he always has to be prepared for the good things to come. There's more to come, and always be ready for the dessert. And so he's ready for the dessert, his rewards in heaven. And so we have to begin that. That ties it all together. The context, therefore, if the context of the epistle is talking about facing deliverance from trials today, then salvation is a phase two concept, not phase three. And if the faith that we're talking about is faith for deliverance in the midst of trials then, then what, whenever we run across these terms, even though it looks like it could mean talking about working out salvation in terms of glorification, it doesn't mean that because nothing in the context is talking about that. And so that causes us to have to go back and, and sort of rework the cogs of our mind because so often uh, we've heard verse 5 as a verse that is interpreted as we're kept by God through faith for that ultimate uh, salvation, realization of glorification that's revealed in the last time. And doesn't last time sound so much like it could be the end time judgment? So we, we want to make sure that, that, that we're in heaven. So, But that doesn't fit any of the context. And we have to go back and, and, and reevaluate it. So just for clarification, let me sort of go through this by the numbers. Point number one what we saw last time was that the context of 1 Peter is to encourage and strengthen readers to hang tough in times of fiery trials. The theme is very similar to James, to persevere, to endure in times of trial, to trust in God now so that we can experience that salvation 
in the midst of these fiery trials. So that's the overall message of 1 Peter. Second, the immediate context sets a directional flow. Verses 3, 4, and 5 represents one sentence in the Greek. Those three verses are setting a trajectory into verses 6 through 8. Okay? So if you're driving down the highway in your car and you want to make sure you get off on the correct exit ramp, you don't point left, you point right. Does that communicate? So if verses 3 through 5 are pointing, if we take that as pointing to phase 3 glorification, but then in verse 6 we're going to the right in terms of deliverance from fiery trials, then 3, 4, and 5 as a sentence doesn't prepare us, doesn't direct us, doesn't put us on the right trajectory to hit the target of deliverance from fiery trials in verses 6, 7, and 8. So so if the purpose of that first sentence is to orient us, start orienting us to what Peter is talking about, if Peter is talking about deliverance from difficulties to experience the power of God on a day-to-day basis when we face challenges, difficulties, temptations, testing, all of these things, then verses 3 through 5 has to, has to be pointed in that same direction. Otherwise, we're just going to be misdirected. And unfortunately, the way we have versified the Bible, people tend to just look at verses. I'm going to have my quiet time. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. And tomorrow they have quiet time, and they read 6 to 7, and they don't try to connect the dots between 6, 7, and 8 back to 3, 4, and 5. But when Peter's writing this, there's no verses. He's writing to orient and direct our thinking in a specific direction and because that's the nature of writing and the nature of reading. So the immediate context is talking about suffering and the adversity and how they face it and how they can address that suffering so that they can have real joy in their life in the midst of horrific circumstances. <coughs> So the third thing we saw is that this tells us that the introductory of, verse, of, of verses 3 through 5, which is basically what I just said, orients the reader to deliverance from current trials. So we saw that the overall context is to encourage and strengthen believers in times of trials. The immediate context in verse 6 and following talks about suffering and facing trials. So that tells us that verses 3 through 5 orients to that topic. And that leads to the fourth point that the key words such as faith and salvation are referring to the faith rest drill, faith and believing all through this is basically talking about the faith rest drill in the believer's life after salvation. And that's how we handle adversity. And that salvation here, it really should be translated deliverance from difficulty. The word sozo can refer to any kind of deliverance, deliverance from bad health. So sometimes it's translated healing in the Gospels. Sometimes it can be uh, deliverance from a physical disaster in which it's just talking about deliverance. Sometimes it's talking about being saved from, from the penalty of sin, in which case it's translated salvation. Other times it's talking about being saved from the penalty of, I mean, uh, from the presence of sin, and uh, or, or excuse me, the power of sin, and that's phase two, and that's really what we're talking about here. So when we look at 
verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, that's the starting point, to a living hope. Now, this is important. This living hope is focusing on phase one, phase two, or phase three. Here's a task question to see if you're, if you're engaged. Living hope, hope is what? A present confidence in a future reality. But it's the present confidence. So present is going to be phase one, phase two, or phase three. It's going to be phase two. It's a living hope. That, again, that, that uh, uh, modifier there, it's a living hope. It's present re- reality. So the living hope is really talking about living today in light of eternity, and we classify that as a problem-solving device, the personal sense living today in terms of our eternal destiny or our personal sense of our eternal destiny. <coughs> And this is done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as we look at phase two, phase two is to to deliver us from the present power of sin. Now think about that just a little bit. The goal of the present Christian life is for us to be experientially delivered from the power of sin right now. But if you talk to most Christians, they're going, one of two things has happened. One is they've just given up completely, in which case they've gone to pure antinomianism, and they say, well, I'm just going to keep confessing my sin because that's all I can do, and I've just, I've just given up. You know, when, when I get tempted, I just, I just engage, and then I, I, I confess. Or you go to the other extreme, which is legalism, and they're not experiencing any kind of joy or the spiritual life because they're living the whole spiritual life on the basis of legalism. Those are your own, only, only real two options. Now, we think about the Christian life. Christian life is always presented in Scripture as a struggle, we, as wrestling against these, these powers. It, it is a, it, it's a battle. Uh, the metaphor throughout Scripture talks about warfare, talks about using really violent imagery in Romans 6 that we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That is a strong, violent image that, that we're to engage in. Uh, we're not to pet the sin nature. We're, we're not to give, give strokes to our sin nature. Not to, now, now, don't be quite that bad. But that's where a lot of Christians are. They, they've sort of reached detente with their sin nature. But what we have in the Scripture is this presentation of three enemies of the Christian life. And everybody here knows what those three enemies of the Christian life are. We've heard them forever and ever, uh, not in the correct order, but they're usually summarized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. But that's not the right order. The, the primary enemy that we have is the devil. And what is the devil trying to do to each and every one of us? What is Satan's goal? What is his real-time mission day in, day out, 24-7 in terms of your spiritual life? How does the Scripture present that? It is a graphic, violent image. In 1 Peter 5.8, Satan wants to swallow us up. He wants to totally consume us. He is described as as being like a lion, your adversary, the devil. It's an adversarial relationship that we have with Satan. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, what? 
devour. That word means to swallow up or consume or to completely gobble up. He just wants to gobble us up so that so that we are internalized in his way of thinking. So that's the devil's mission, and that's a violent image. Now, when we're internalized within Satan's way of thinking, that way of thinking is described by the word cosmos, translated the world. And the world also seems to have a bit of a violent image there. It is attempting to conform us to itself. It wants to press us into its mold. It wants to completely dominate us so that there's no room for independent thought. We think like the world thinks, and the pressure is there to be like the world. It's peer pressure on steroids. So Romans 12.1 tells us that the world wants, to, uh, wants us to conform to its norms and standards, to its values, to its way of thinking, to its ideology. And, but those two enemies are outside of us. They're external. They're attacking us from the inside. But they have a, they have a friend. They have an inside agent, a spy, uh, inside of us called the sin nature. It's described in Scripture as the flesh. And the terminology used to describe the operation of the flesh towards us, and God is the one who used this image, is first depicted as a wild animal, as a carnivorous, untamable creature that is crouching to trap us and to engulf us and to, and to destroy us. And that's seen in Genesis 4-7 when God is talking to Cain and he says, Beware because sin is crouching at the door, waiting to get you. So here we have these three enemies, and they are uh, have an orientation of violence toward us to completely control our lives apart from uh, apart from the grace of God. So we have these three enemies uh, of the spiritual life: two external, one internal. And the internal is the one that is most dangerous. The internal one is the one that is allegedly under the control of our volition as as church-age believers, but we still want to act like all we have to do is follow its dictates because it's not easy. That's the habit pattern we developed from the time we were saved until, I mean, from the time we were born until the time we were saved. And if you were saved like I was when you were a little kid, you really didn't know any better until maybe you got into... Uh, some of your early teen years and began to to really grasp the significance of of temptation and all of these other things that that were going on and you how do I really deal with this and unfortunately, Christianity has never done a good job with this because Christianity has often been mired in legalism so that in the in the early church and through the middle ages rather than trying to deal with it on the basis of scripture. They tried to deal with it on the basis of either legalism or mysticism, scaring that, literally trying to scare the hell out of people by saying if you commit these sins, you're going to lose your salvation or you, or you never were saved to begin with. 
And this is kind of what happens with, with people who think that if you commit sins such as uh, any kind of immorality, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexual immorality and adultery, or whether it's murder or duplicity or lying or any number of other sins, creating factions, arrogance, all of these things, that people who do those things are going to go to the lake of fire. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we all come under uh, the, the guilt of those sins because we all have a sin nature. The solution is that Christ died for our sins. But as Paul says in Romans 6, we've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So therefore, that power of the sin nature is broken, and we are to, Romans 6, 11, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. And then later... In Romans 8, it says we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So we have to be actively engaged, but we can't just do it out of our own power. We have to do that through the Holy Spirit, and that's what Paul is emphasizing in Romans 8. We put to death the deeds of the flesh by walking according to, uh, walking according to the Holy, Holy Spirit. So the solution to our enemies is always the same. It's the Word of God whether the enemy is the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God is going to enable the child of God to be conformed to the image of Christ. Okay? Let me go through this one more time. Say it a little differently. The Word of God plus the Spirit of God is going to enable the child of God to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Y'all can memorize that. Tattoo it on the inside of your eyelids. It's the Word of God plus the, plus the Spirit of God enables the child of God uh, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. That summarizes the spiritual life as we understand it. We are to have our character transformed, not conformed, pushed, shoved, and, and made to look like the world, but it's supposed to be transformed we're supposed to be changing as a result of the intake of the word of god as we learn it then we apply it so that gives us our our background now what i want to do is walk us through these verses so we understand the structure of 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 peter's thought as he sets us up for the main part of this introduction that comes from verse in verses 6 down through verse 12 In the first part, he says that every Christian is born again to a living hope. Every one of us, that's the first thing. Every one of us is born again to a living hope. And the emphasis there, as I pointed out, is present time reality. We're born again to a living hope. It's it's real time. Right now, this hope is ours. It's a real time event so that we can use that to face the problems, the difficulties, and the challenges that we have. And we face a lot of problems. We face the, these three enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh, and they manifest in a lot of different ways. They manifest in terms of internal temptations from our sin nature uh, to, to the enticements of the culture around us that provide us with lots of rationalizations to justify just going with the flow, just going with our sin nature, doing what, what feels right to us, uh, temptations to compromise, to find solutions. Instead of trusting in God alone, in his grace alone, in the sufficiency of of his word and his grace, 
we're tempted to add something to it, to help him out, because that's really tough to depend upon the word of God alone. I just don't know it that well. Or the grace of God. Uh, I just don't understand. I still struggle. Yes, I think we've missed the point there that even after we're we're saved and when we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit isn't going to make it easier, but He's going to give us the ability to overcome. That's the issue. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no ability to overcome unless you're just trying to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. But the Holy Spirit enables us to to do it, but it doesn't make it easy. It never makes it easy when we're dealing with, with sin. We have to, because that is such an internal, it's such an internal habit pattern for us as a hangover from our time before we were saved. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that, that we're slaves of whomever we obey. If we're obeying the sin nature, then we're slaves to our sin nature. We were born slaves to the sin nature, but after you're saved, you, the default position is to go back to what our comfort zone is. And our comfort zone is carnality because that's what worked for us or seemed to work for us for the first 7, 8, 9, 10, 20, 30 years of our life. And the longer you go before you save and get on doctrine, I think the more difficult it is. But but that's a manner of probably infinitesimal um, uh, differences because that sin nature is of such a... a present reality it, it's, it seems such a such a present overpowering experience that we just want to give up we don't really want to trust god that we can uh, win those battles so the bible tells us though that we have a present reality it's this living hope that's going to enable us to get past these tests and these temptations so the second thing that we've seen is that every believer has an incorruptible, unfading heavenly inheritance. Every believer has this inheritance. We're heirs of God. Every believer has that. And we've seen this in 1 Peter 1, 4, 1, 5. We're all born again. That's verse 3. We all have a living hope. That's verse 3. And then verse 4 tells us we all have this permanently reserved future inheritance. It doesn't matter if you're if you're a complete failure in the Christian life or if you're doing well in the Christian life, you can relax because the end result is that you have an unfading, incorruptible uh, inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you. So this is what we saw in verses 4 and 5. The third thing that we see here is not only is this inheritance reserved in heaven for us, verse 4, but it's related to those of us who are currently being kept by the power of God. Now, heirs of God refers to every believer, but there's something additional for those heirs of God who are implementing the faith rest drill. And first of all, we need to look at this term we about um, being kept by the power of God. Now, we've looked at Romans 8, 16, and 17, that we're all heirs of God, so that applies to every one of us. We're all heirs of God, and we all have that permanently reserved inheritance. But in addition to that, if we are uh, walking by the Spirit, then we are this, we have this this inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us. That refers to phase three. So the word tereo here 
is a translation of reserved. That's a translation of reserved. It's something that's already taken. It's a perfect tense. I pointed that out last time. It's a completed action, and it's reserved in heaven. That's talking about phase three. It's reserved in heaven for us. So we're going to realize it only after we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. It's reserved for each and every one of us. That's the significance of the plural you. And in your notes, you ought to put down that that's a y'all for everyone. And then this is further defined as, as in addition to that, we have, if we're implementing uh, the faith rest drill, uh, we realize the, the, uh, the, the power of God uh, that's explained in verse 5. And, and here Paul says we're kept by the power of God. The word here in the Greek is phoreo. Now, this, this is really an interesting word. It's only used four times when we look at, at uh, the, the New Testament. One time it's used to refer to the, phys- the guards who are physically guarding the Apostle Paul in Damascus. Uh, a second time it's used in regard to how the law guarded the Old Testament saints. The law was a guard to the Old Testament saints, and that's in Galatians. But third, it's used in um, a passage that's familiar to most of us in Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall, and I usually translate it, shall defend or guard uh, it, it's really a military concept. We don't use this word this way, so it's a little antiquated. We'll garrison our hearts. It protects us. It provides a fortification for our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So that's that same word there that's translated guard or garrison or protect or preserve uh, your hearts in Christ Jesus. And then the fourth uses of the word is here in First Peter 1.5 that we're guarded, we're garrisoned by the power of God. And that is such a powerful image that that what protects us in times when we feel so threatened, when it's either temptation or it's adversity or when everything seems to be falling apart around us, uh, what is still enveloping us and enabling us is the power of God. Uh, it is the power of God that, that we're kept by. And this is an, an important concept here because we have this phrase, uh, by the power of God, and that indicates the most immediate or primary basis for this, this guarding. It's God's power that keeps you. So, so when we face situations, so maybe it's an internal situation. Maybe you're the kind of person where your sin nature really runs to mental attitude types of sins. Maybe it's a maybe it has to do with phobias, with fears, with anxiety, with with worry. Maybe it has to do with depression, and a lot of people seem to struggle with with depression uh, for one reason or another. And I think a lot of that has to do with the wrong focus in life. But then there's other times when it just related to the ebb and flow of life itself. We have we know that our bodies are made up of uh, uh, we have certain chemicals that when we're in uh, maybe it's a result of certain things that we eat. Maybe it's a result of the way we're, we've been thinking in terms of our mental attitude that these kinds of things can generate certain chemicals that cause us to, to feel down. And so we have a case of the blues. 
Sometimes we're just, we, we haven't had enough sleep. It can be related to lots of different causes. So everybody goes through times when, when they're a, a, a little bit happier and uh, sometimes a little sadder, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. Everybody goes through these trends. I really think that how you react to those things can set habit patterns and chemical patterns in your, in your mind, in our thinking. And I talked, touched on this a little bit the other night, quoting from uh, an article, Chapter 3, called uh, The Emerging Epidemic, in this book, State of the American Mind, talking about the role that chemical, that, that drugs play in chemically altering our thinking. And I really encourage you that if you are a believer who is uh, taking antidepressants, antipsychotics. I'm just amazed at how many people in our culture, probably how many people I know, who are taking these kinds of drugs. I had a, a, a woman say one time, then this was a person who had been a believer for probably much of her life, and you would think that she should, should know better. And she said uh, she hit menopause. And I understand that a lot of women, when they hit menopause and hormones start going crazy again, that that, that is a time when a lot of doctors just, just default to prescribing uh, antidepressants. It's going to make it easier. And her comment was, oh, it just made it so much easier to follow the Holy Spirit once I got on Prozac. Totally missing the irony there that dr- drugs are not necessary to make to help us become more spiritual if if they are give me lots of them but what do you do with people who for 1900 years since the early church don't have drugs god the holy spirit provided for every one of us and it's the same basic provision it's the word of god and the spirit of god those, those are the tools and that there, that that depression, schizophrenia, because uh, this article talks about what happens in, in rewiring the chemicals in the brain when you get on antipsychotics for schizophrenics and manic depressives. And I'm not I'm not validating him. I think he's right. That's my opinion. But I'm telling you that that there's a lot of research that he quotes. And if you are a person who is on any of these kind of drugs, and you need to take some time to really research. He has a whole book. I, I can't remember the name of the author right now, but he's a whole book by the same title, The Emerging Epidemic, and he goes through all of the data, all the research. He's not the only one. Uh, as I mentioned on Tuesday night, Gene gave me a book back in the late 90s. Even then it was already out of print called Toxic Psychiatry. And this was written by a top, not a Christian, a top secular psychiatrist from New York uh, taught in medical school and was was going through the research at that time that when we take any kind of uh, of drug and it can be expanded beyond just these kinds of drugs, it changes the chemical structure of what's going on in our bodies and changes the chemical structure of our minds. But the way God has built us, I believe, as believers is that, that, that when something starts going, the, the brain has these other chemicals coming into it and treats that as some kind of a, 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 an invasion. And so the, the, the way God has built us is the brain is then going to produce compensatory chemicals to bring things back to normal. 
And so it creates a more and more of a dependency. Doses have to go up. And as this article I quoted the other day says, that studies have shown that over a long period of time, people who take these drugs, see, what, what we're having to do is I've got these problems, and the way to solve them is, is through, through drugs. And here's another thing that, that, that um, um, Franklin came up and reminded me about uh, after class because he's been going through a lot of, lot of workshops and studies on these things as part of his nursing uh, uh, responsibilities is that the framework, what is the worldview framework of the doctors who are promoting all of this? What's their worldview? Is it materialist or, or, or biblical theist? They're materialists. They believe in evolution. Therefore, you don't have an immaterial soul. The, the framework that is being taught on human behavior today is it's all physiological. You don't have an immaterial soul. Whatever makes you you is, part, is, is caused by the chemical structure of your brain. It's all chemical. So we can fix it. We just change the chemicals. There's no sense of personal responsibility and volition, no sense uh, of, of uh, divine institution number one. It, that's just, that's just a, 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 a facade. That's an illusory idea that we played with until we understood the chemical makeup of the brain. And then we realized that everything, everything you do, everything I do is really a result of the chemical uh, structure of, of our brain. So we have to uh, get past that. But the Word of God is saying that change is possible and change is real, but it comes by the Word of God plus the Spirit of God. So, so what protects us when we go through these these tests, the, the the adversity that we face, is going to be the power of God. And this term, power of God, is 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 a strong term. Dunamis is a word that is often used in the in the Gospels to refer to Christ's miracles, His healing uh, of the lame, His His cleansing of the lepers, His, his mighty works that give sight to the blind. Uh, this is dunamis. It's the omnipotence of God, that he is more powerful than anything in his creation, and he can handle, uh, handle the problem. Jesus is addressed by the Sadducees in Matthew 22 with this, this made-up little conundrum about a woman who's married to a man, and he dies, and he marries another one, and he dies, and she marries another one, and he dies, and they keep dying until all seven have died. And then... Uh, uh, they say, well, they're just asking this facetious little question of him, trying to trap him and say, well, who's, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They don't even believe in resurrection. And so Jesus dire directs his answer straight to the problem. He says, you're mistaken because you don't know the Scripture and you don't know the power of God. The problem is there's no doctrinal orientation in their thinking. And when you don't have doctrinal orientation in your thinking, you're not going to be oriented to the power of God that God can solve your problem. That's going to drive you back to the faith rest drill, as we see. And we have another passage we've seen not too long ago in Romans 15. Now may the God of hope. Anytime you see hope, that is emphasizing that personal sense of our eternal destiny. The, the, our future destiny becomes a present reality that's so great that it helps us, strengthen us to make the right decisions. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, perfect happiness, sharing the happiness of God, and peace, not in believing, as it's translated in the New King James, but by believing. Faith, rest, drill really undergirds all the problem-solving 
skills, all the problem-solving devices, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So believing is believing what? How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you just need to have faith? But we have this human viewpoint thinking that you're to have faith in faith, that faith in and of itself is a power. But that's not what the Bible says. It's faith in the Word of God, faith in the Spirit of God, faith in the promise of God, faith in the grace of God, faith in the cross of Christ. Faith is always directed towards something of content. It's not faith in faith itself. Faith doesn't do diddly. Faith is just a means to to focus on an object, and it's the object of faith that has has the significance. So we can only have uh, really understand the God of hope and have joy if we are believing, trusting in, in Him and living by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And then one of my favorite passages and situations is when Paul is tormented by this demonic messenger. Okay, he's de- this demonic messenger uh, comes, and, and it's a messenger of Satan, an angel uh, of Satan, actually, and he says, which would be a demon, and he prays to God several times to remove this thorn in the flesh. And, and finally, God says, I- I'm not going to do it because it's there for a purpose to teach you and train you in your dependency upon me. And God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. We have to understand that grace functions like a power. It enables us. Understand God's grace means that his power is freely given to us. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will, Paul says, I will most rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest in me. Now, you're only going to admit and boast in your infirmities if you have a healthy dose of humility, which was what, part of what this test was, was attempting to teach Paul. We have to understand that it is not in our power. It's not in our intellect. It's not in our skills. It's not in our thinking abilities. It's not in our abilities to, to have the right mental attitude. It is simply trusting in the power of Christ, and we can surmount these problems. Does that mean it's easy? No. Does that mean it's going to go away tomorrow? No. Does that mean that we're going to have to engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat with the Spirit of God and the Word of God on a day-to-day basis? Yes, it does. So Paul concludes in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure. That's joy again. We're going to see this every time the Scripture talks about handling tests. It talks about joy, sharing the happiness of God. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, I get up in the morning and say, bring it on. I'm going to be persecuted today because that's going to enable me to trust God more. That's our mental attitude. We rejoice in the battle. As Jim Myers used to always tell me, you have to learn to love the battle. It's a process to learn to love the battle because that's not what we want to do. We want to roll over and play dead. In infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ephesians 1.18 talks about the power of God, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know that's doctrinal orientation. So we have to, that, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we can learn and know what is the hope. There's that personal sense of our eternal destiny again. The hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? Inheritance is related to our eternal destiny. So we're living today in light of eternity. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, the greatness of his power, his omnipotence toward us who believe? That is not phase one, that's phase two, the faith rest drill, according to the working of his mighty power. Verse 20 just talks about being exemplified in the resurrection. So we're kept by the power of God. We're preserved by the power of God, and it's done through faith. The immediate the immediate means is the power of God. The secondary means is expressed in the Greek by this phrase using uh, the preposition deal with the genitive, and that is like the pipeline, the pipeline that, that brings the power of God from his throne into our life. Okay, so it's not uh, through faith that is faith for justification, but this is going to be faith for the spiritual life. The, the, through faith, that phrase is used, as I pointed out last time, many times as phase one, like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. But it's also used in passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 7 for phase two. We walk by faith, dia plus the genitive. We walk through faith. That is how we appropriate the power of God in our lives, also seen in Hebrews 6, 12 and Hebrews 11, 3. So God's power is the primary basis that we're able to surmount the problems, whatever they are, whether they're emotional problems, whether they're physical problems, whether they're external problems, whether they're circumstance problems, whatever they are, God's power is primary, and we access that through the pipeline of faith. It is through the pipeline, through faith, that that is actualized in our life. Now, this is what we see in the context, as I pointed out last time. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, 6, the context is talking about being grieved by various trials. It doesn't say that the trials make us happy. They hurt. If I walk up to you and kick you in the shins, that hurts. If you go through an ex a situation in life that kicks you in the emotional shins, that's going to hurt. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5.13? That, that we grieve. Same word. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. It doesn't say if you're, if you're a Christian and you're sharing the happiness of God, then it's a sin to grieve. Some Christians get that idea that somehow it's wrong to feel bad, sometimes to be tired, to be emotionally weary, to struggle. But these phrases are used of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. But he didn't use that emotion in a way to justify sinful responses. But when we get slapped upside the head with some really bad circumstances, we feel bad. That's normal. The feeling bad is not a sin. It's letting the feeling bad drive us to some sort of, of wrong way to solve the problem. Drugs, alcohol, anger, jealousy, resentment, vindictiveness, all of those can be ways to, uh, to try to solve the bad emotions uh, the wrong way. 
First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 says that it's through the genuineness of your faith. That's the faith rest drill again. That's the context. Verse 8, by believing, that's faith rest drill. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, that's the faith rest drill. All through here, that's the box top on top of the jigsaw puzzle. We're talking about the same thing. That informs us. So that tells us that verses 4 and 5 have to be talking about phase, uh, about phase 2. 2 Peter 1.3 emphasizes this as well. His divine power. I pointed this out last time at the very end. God's divine power. It's his omnipotence that has given, uh, given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How do we know what those things are that he's given to us? It's through knowledge, doctrinal orientation. We have to learn the word of God. You have to have, I talked about this Tuesday night, you have to have that general knowledge of content. Biblical content provides the pegs or the coat hangers on which we can hang all the details, other details of the scripture and doctrine and theology So we have to have that knowledge. And here it's the knowledge of him, knowing God, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And through these, it's through the promises. That's the faith rest drill. It's by knowing promises, memorizing them, making them part of our consciousness, and applying them, mixing our faith with the promises of God. So we're... Back to verse 5, we're kept by the power of God, his omnipotence, through faith, that's the faith rest drill, for salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last, last times. And that salvation is a phase two salvation. It's a deliverance from these trials. So it's really better to translate it that it's through faith for deliverance. And then that deliverance is through the fiery trials in the context of First Peter. He talks about these fiery trials. Verse 6, various trials for 12 fiery trials, okay? Now, this is what's really interesting. The next verse, where it's through faith rest drill for deliverance, ready to be revealed in the last time. But that word ready obscures the meaning of the text. Now, the word that's there in the Greek is this word in the lower right, etoimos, and it can mean ready, but it means to be prepared, something that is prepared ahead of time. You're going to have guests over for dinner tomorrow night, so there's certain things that you can prepare today so that you don't have to take up your time with everything tomorrow. So God prepared certain things for us ahead of time, long ahead of time, in eternity past. He provided us with and planned a spiritual life that would sustain us through whatever problems we might face. So we should translate this Uh, through faith for a deliverance prepared and it is uh, it's prepared from eternity past to be unveiled in the last time now we're going to get there but the last time refers to this current dispensation in our lives so God's prepared it so that it can be revealed in our lives so that we can take what he has planned positionally or potentially rather and we can see it realized in our life. This is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond your ability. Now, in, our, in, in the flesh, we don't have any ability. But walking by the Spirit, we have every ability. 
So this applies to every believer because we all have the potential of walking by the Spirit. And so that's our 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 way to be able to uh, handle the temptation. And then he says, but with the temptation, we'll make a way to escape, not to avoid it, but to endure it. Okay, so that, that salvation, that deliverance is prepared from eternity past to be revealed or disclosed in our lives in the last times. Now, this is a really unusual phrase. It's only used this, this way in, in one time and in terms of the, the exact precise grammar, singular noun, that, that kind of a thing. But other terms like eschatos for last and kairos, these are used uh, in other passages. 2 Timothy 3.1 talks about this church age as the last days. Hebrews 1.2 is even more precise. In these last days, this was written when? This was written in the early 60s. Already they're talking about we're in the last days. The whole church age is the last days. First Peter 1.20, the immediate context we're in, makes it just as clear that uh, Christ was foreordained, foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. It's almost the precise exact phrase to the one we have here. It's just a little different. Same words. In these last times. So from Peter's perspective, the whole church age is the last time. So when he says in verse 5 to be revealed in the last time he's talking about right here and now in this church age God has a plan and he has provided us with all the resources to solve whatever it is we're facing if we will only trust him walk by the spirit with the word of God then we can manifest these his power in our life in overcoming the sin nature and in and overcoming whatever these problems are that are, are in our life. So, next time we're going to come back and look at 1 Peter 1.6. 1 Peter 1.6 starts off like this. The, this is the next sentence. Remember, 3, 4, and 5 is one sentence in the Greek. And then its next sentence is, In this you greatly rejoice. To what does the in this refer? Does it refer to the salvation, the deliverance ready to be revealed in verse verse 5? Or does it have a broader reference? I think it has a broader reference. In this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the fact that God has begotten us again to a living hope, that he has secured for us from eternity past an inheritance that is incorruptible and unfading, and that he is keeping us, present tense, by his power through faith. So that's up to us to exercise our faith and his power then is realized uh, in our lives. And so we rejoice in all of that, even though for a little while, if need be, we are grieved by various trials. And we'll start into that section next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Challenge us with the need to trust in your sufficiency that your grace has provided it all, your power in strengthens it all, And what is necessary for us is to completely, totally trust you, engage the battle with our three enemies according to the principles laid out in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.